You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Well, we're making our way through Luke's gospel, and we are spending time uh, once one Sunday on each of the three temptations Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tested uh, by God. Um, so we're in uh, Luke chapter 4 this morning, verses 5 through 8. And for our little theologians, please don't draw Jesus and don't draw the devil. <clears throat> That will be a temptation because it's Jesus and the devil in the wilderness. Don't, don't draw Jesus or the devil, uh, but do try and draw every kingdom. So that's easy, right? So draw because, because Jesus is going to, uh, or the devil is going to show Jesus every kingdom of the world. And I want, I want, show us what that might look like, every kingdom. So that's what I'd like for you to draw, every kingdom with, uh, and each kingdom has a ruler. Uh, the passage is Luke 4, verses 5 through 8. Let me pray for us, and then we will uh, read this passage. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would accompany us by your Spirit and the preaching of your Word. It is not my Word. It is not the church's Word. It is your Word, Father. It is holy. It is authoritative. It is infallible. It is inerrant. Now... Would you make me your servant, that your word would be proclaimed? In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 5. <clears throat> and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This is the reading of our Lord. Remember, keep this in mind. The first time that Jesus went into the wilderness, it was to be baptized by John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist uh, is in the, in the wilderness, uh, performing his function before God in the wilderness. And Jesus actually goes into that wilderness that he might be baptized by John. Now, however, after his baptism, after he has prayed and after the heavens have opened and the spirit like a dove has descended upon him uh, and God has spoken to him, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Now Jesus is being led, as it were, deeper into the wilderness. He's led into the wilderness and he's led by the Holy Spirit. And this wilderness is a wilderness of testing. He's he goes into the wilderness to be baptized by John, and now he is led by the Holy Spirit according to God's plan into the deepest part of the wilderness that he might be tested by the devil. Now, I think that this should come at least on some level as a bit of a surprise to us. And it's a surprise for this reason. God has already said of Jesus, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. 
And it is uh, written to us in such a way that it would seem that that was a public word, that Jesus wasn't the only one to have heard that. Certainly the devil heard that, if you are the Son of God. But imagine the, the populace in the wilderness hearing that very word and everyone thinking exactly like some of you may be thinking, and that is, why would he be led into the wilderness of testing? He is already well-pleasing to God. There's nothing more that he needs to do. And, and I just, I, I, I want to suggest this to you, that one of the reasons maybe the, why you think that way, that you're surprised that Jesus would need to go into the wilderness to be tested, is because most of us, if not all of us, never really believe that we need much help from God at all. We never really believe that, do we? Or maybe it's better to say, to say it this way. Even if we would say, I, I know that I need help from the Lord, someone could look at our lives and they could say, you don't act like someone who needs the help of the Lord. You don't look like or act like or speak like someone who is in much need of God. Keep in mind that, it, that the disciples themselves were very surprised that Jesus had to die. And yet Jesus said, it was necessary for me to die. But spending time with Jesus, they assumed that surely he doesn't have to die. He can just do something great and everything is golden. He doesn't have to die. And the reason they think that is because they think lowly of their own sin. And I suspect when we are surprised that Jesus has to go into this wilderness of testing, part of the reason we are surprised is because we think no one needs to be saved that badly, especially not me. There's no way that he needs to be tested. Surely he can just live a good life up to the age of 30 and I'm saved. But he must be tested Jesus is not merely a divine man, he's a real man, he's a true man, he's very man, and for that reason, he is God's very man to be the second Adam. All of us are polluted by the sin of the first Adam, and Jesus undoes that work of the first Adam by being the perfect second Adam who endures every test that God has for him to show forth what the second Adam truly is like. What is this Jesus like? He's one whom God can lead into the wilderness of testing and who will at the end prove perfect faultless, the unblemished lamb. And so maybe part of our surprise is that just, we're just surprised that sin's that bad. We're surprised that we're that wicked. We're surprised that anyone would need to do this for us. It's a little embarrassing, isn't it? It's one thing to need a helping hand, but it's another thing to need the very second person of the Trinity to be tested by the first person of the Trinity and led by the third person of the Trinity. How remarkable that I'm so wicked. I'm in such danger of eternal condemnation that this is what's necessary for my salvation. And so while the son is pleasing to his father, yet the father orchestrates a plan to test that son. And what God is showing is he's showing himself worthy to receive all worship. God is showing himself worthy to receive all worship. 
So that Jesus, as he goes into this testing, he himself acknowledges that this God is the only one who's worthy to be worshipped. And Jesus' response to the temptation is to worship that God. But at this part, we, we can ask ourselves, will Jesus worship God? Going through this intense testing, will he worship God? And he does. He worships God. What we see in this passage is we see that the devil places an offer on the table before Jesus. He places an offer before, uh, on the table before Jesus. And, and it's, um, it, it's almost as earthy as that, that the devil sets something out on a table and he slides it over to Jesus, offering for Jesus to take it. So I want to look at the offer that the devil places on the table, but I don't want any of us to leave without hearing that there's another offer on that table. And that offer is made to everyone here. God makes an offer, and that offer is also nudged to you, and it's nudged to you in the person of Jesus Christ. But uh, first, uh, the devil's offer on the table. Uh, you know, in, in the, uh, the temptation that we looked at last week, the devil appear, appeals to the hunger of Jesus, and he asks Jesus or offers to Jesus to feed himself by turning the stones into bread. And here in this second temptation, the devil is actually uh, more proactive than that. It's not simply a matter of just highlighting something that's already there. Uh, the devil is proactive now. Let me offer a bit of an aside. These temptations are told in this gospel, Luke chapter 4, but also in Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew's gospel, this isn't the second temptation. In Matthew's gospel, the second temptation is the one where Jesus is uh, placed on the top of a temple. And Matthew gives all of these cues to tell us that he's presenting everything in chronological order. And so I suspect that Matthew has the chronological order and that the second temptation is actually not this one. But Luke feels at liberty to alter the order a bit. And again, this is an aside, uh, but Luke, I think, is coming to this temptation because the last temptation is about the temple. And one of the things we're going to discover about Luke is he has Jesus in the temple and mentioning the temple over and over and over again. And I wonder if Luke wants that last temptation to be the temptation that leaves the image of the temple on the mind of Theophilus. But that, that really is an aside. Uh, the devil takes Jesus and he shows him something. Look at verse 5. He takes Jesus and he shows Jesus something. No words are used at this point. And he shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world. How does he do that? Well, he uh, elevates Jesus so that his vantage point is better. He says that, uh, that he places Jesus on, on a mountain so he's high. And, and so there perhaps is this great vista that is viewable to Jesus. But it's very difficult to discern um, how it is that all the kingdoms of the world are being shown to Jesus. And in fact, Luke says, in a moment of time, this was done. In a moment of time, and that may be a reference to contemporary uh, kingdoms, uh, kingdoms of the day. Uh, this will give it away, perhaps, for the, our uh, little theologians that are drawing right now. But in my mind, I think of a risk board and just having a, a high view to see all of those kingdoms and the pieces on those kingdoms. 
But, and that, that could be what's happening. But I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 34, which is the last chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. And I don't often do this, and I probably, I probably should. Uh, rather than simply referencing a passage, I should insist that you open your Bibles. So Deuteronomy 34 is a very interesting scene um, let me uh, begin at verse 1 and then kind of skip about it. Deuteronomy 34.1. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. You remember Jericho is the first city that the Israelites uh, fight against when they enter the promised land. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan and Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Do you think that maybe Satan... The devil is recreating this scene. This is Moses, and he's standing on a peak, and he's looking, and he sees all of this land. Look at verse 5 of Deuteronomy 34. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. God's word told Moses that he would not enter that land. God's word told Moses that he would die before entering the land. But I skipped a verse. I did it for a reason. Look at verse 4. This is what God says to Moses before he dies. Deuteronomy 34, 4. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. Isn't that remarkable? One wonders if, just as Moses has to submit to the plan of God, even though Numbers 14 is this wonderful scene of folks that aren't submitting at all, they actually rush into the land and they're pushed back by the Amalekites. But Moses submits, and he submits to the word and the plan of God. And I just can't help but think that what the devil is doing is he is not creative, he is not imaginative. He is actually going to a scene that has already happened, and he takes that particular scene to twist it in such a way that Jesus will do what Moses did not do. Just food for thought. This is what happens, though, isn't it, in the Garden of Eden, where the devil is deceptive, and, and he shifts God's word he twists it in such a way that it would look something similar to God's word, but a slightly shifted landscape. And it seems that Deuteronomy 34 is what the devil is trying to recreate. Now, he doesn't use ver words until verse 6. He doesn't use words until verse 6. He almost suggests this scene to Jesus. But in verse 6, he promises to give Jesus authority and glory. It's not simply a matter of the territory. It's the authority and the glory to rule over that territory and to demand that that territory would worship him. Scholars are uncertain as to whether or not the devil can actually keep this promise. 
It almost depends on the day of the week where I stand on this. Can the devil actually keep this promise that he makes to Jesus? That he will give to Jesus the authority and glory of these kingdoms? Well, we know that the devil cannot exercise any authority uh, himself unless God gives him the authority to do so. The devil's authority is always a derived authority. We see this in the introduction to Job that the devil can't uh, so much as uh, touch Job unless God gives him the authority. But indeed, the, indeed, our God has given the devil a certain kind of authority in this world. Uh, three times John, is going, John the Apostle is going to call Jesus the ruler of the, or Jesus, the devil, the ruler of the world of the prince of this world. And in 1 John 5.19, we read that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He has power, but I suspect he's not able to actually deliver on the promise that he has made to Jesus, but he, he really doesn't have to. Of course, the devil is not only a liar, he's the father of lies. So you ought not be surprised if he is lying to Jesus, saying that he could give Jesus the authority and glory of these kingdoms, yet not actually being able to do that. But here's what he's really doing. He's inviting Jesus to partner with him to get something that he himself wants. The devil wants an eternal authority and glory over all the kingdoms of the world. And he's inviting Jesus to join him in this partnership to get that authority and that glory. He's inviting Jesus to partner with him to get his own will. The devil sees something, he wants something, and he's inviting Jesus to join him in the partnership to get that. And the reason we know that that's the case is because in verse 5, he shows them something. In verse 6, he speaks. And then in verse 7, he twists, or he translates. He shows Jesus something. He speaks to Jesus. But then in verse 7, we really see what's at his heart. Verse 7 says, If you then will worship me. If you then will worship me. In verse 6, he's already made the argument for worshiping the devil. And so he says in verse 7, he says, If you then, or we could read verse 7 this way, Therefore, since you worship me, and then he goes on. The invitation to worship is in verse 6 before it's mentioned in verse 7. And here's what I mean by that. In verse 6, he says, I will give you authority. I will give you glory. To you, I give it to whom I will. This is verse 6. He's saying, Jesus, you can possess these things, but you'll possess them for one reason. I'm giving them to you. I'm giving these things to you. You know, of course, that if Jesus says yes, he's owned by the devil. If he says yes, he's owned by the devil. If he says yes, he's worshiping the devil already. He's saying that I don't have the power to have these things on my own. And even though I can exercise authority, I only do so because I've derived it from you, devil. That's what the devil is inviting him to partner in. I'm going to give you some things, but you will owe me forever. You ever, you ever uh, been helped out financially? Do you feel that you owe forever? You feel it. 
And, and the devil is saying, I'm going to give these things to you, but you're going to feel it forever. In a moment, I'll give them to you. You'll feel it forever. Because all of the authority and the glory that Jesus would then possess would be a derived authority and glory. And who would it be derived from? It would be derived from the devil. Jesus, say yes, and I own you. Say yes, and I own you. That's what the devil is saying. You know, nobody can say that the authority and glory that they have is their own. You know that, right? Nobody here can say that the authority and the glory that you have is an authority and glory that you actually own. This is the great contradiction of arrogance. Even the most powerful ruler in all the world is remarkably fragile. How do we know? Take um, Alexander as an example. How do we know that powerful ruler, that young boy Alexander, how do we know that he was fragile, that he wasn't the source of his own authority and he wasn't the source of his own glory? How do we know? Because he's dead. Where is he today? Find one man today who's afraid of Alexander. He's dead. Some of us will fool ourselves. In fact, all of us fool ourselves into thinking that we own our own authority and our own glory. But none of us do. None of us do. Our bodies are decaying right as we sit here. Can you stop that? You cannot stop that. Your body is decaying right now. And if your body is filled with the robustness of health, you can't protect yourself against tragedy and terminal illness. Sneaks up on you and surprises you. You can't protect yourself from tragedy. To say that you are the source of your own authority and your own glory is to say that you've conquered tragedy. That tragedy is not a word that has a place in your vocabulary. And that is foolishness. It's foolishness. Everyone is owned. Everyone is owned because there are things that you cannot control. And so this is the offer that the devil slides across the table to Jesus, but there's a divine interruption here. There's another offer on the table, and I want you to hear this. If I've just gotten you to admit that, yes, I really am owned by uh, my pursuit of health even though I'm going to die, or my pursuit of riches even though the money could be taken away from me, or my pursuit of certain behaviors, even though I know that there are people right next to me who have far better behaviors than I do. Even if I convince you of that, I want, I want you to hear this. There's an interruption. There's another offer on the table. You don't have to be uh, subject to the authority of the devil. You don't have to be subject to the authority of your employer, your habits, your tastes, your dispositions. You don't have to be subject to a quest for health. There's another offer on the table. You see, the by, that, and that we see that by it is written. Notice that Jesus is not creating a new doctrine here. He says it's written. This has already been written. The Bible asserts that every man and woman have been created for a purpose. And that purpose is to live a life that acknowledges that they are owned by God. That is God's purpose in creation, that you would acknowledge that you are owned by God, that you owe Him all obedience and faithfulness, life and worship, that you owe everything to Him. That's the other offer that's on the table, an opportunity to have God's authority for you. 
his authority for you. Jesus says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. I want to say not only are there this morning two offers on the table before you, I want to say that one offer totally eats up the other offer. One offer totally eats up the other offer. If you say yes to the devil, you will live in subject to things that he has given you the rest of your life. You will be subjected to him. He will lie to you. He will tell you things like, I am my own source of authority. I am my own source of authority. He'll lie to you. But the offer of the gospel, the offer that God gives to you, is an offer to come into a saving relationship with him that you might worship him exactly according to the purpose he created you for. That's the offer. In such a way, when you say yes to that offer, all of your service to your employer, all of your pursuits for money and for health, all of those pursuits and services are done in the service of God. They're done in the service of God. If your main pursuit is money and you lose the money, you are actually decimated if Satan is your master. You're decimated. But if you pursue money for the glory of God and you lose all of that money, you still have a rich relationship with God. You are still able to serve Him in the way that He has created you to serve Him. The money goes away, and you're not decimated. How? How can I serve this God rather than serving uh, the devil according to the offer that He's made? There's two things. The first is by willingly happily setting aside your own power, your own authority, your own glory. The, the biblical terminology for this is repentance. How can I worship the only God who is worthy to receive worship? The first thing is setting aside your power and authority and glory. You acknowledge that you will never, never achieve your own power and authority, not until you're able to conquer death itself because you will decay and you will die. So the first step is acknowledging that and setting aside that heartfelt desire to be your own source of authority. And the second step is to receive the power and authority and glory of another. That's to receive the power of Christ Jesus. Look how Jesus asserts his power in obedience to God. He asserts his power by going to God's word and trusting that what God has said about himself is true. He understands who God is. He understands that. And so the offer that the devil makes is an offer that Jesus says no to, and you say no to as well, in Christ Jesus. Because you acknowledge that it's his victory before temptation that saves me. I can serve this God even as a failure. Because it's Jesus serving for me. The question is this, why does God test him? He tests him so that we would sit here today and we would see that the Jesus that saves us is a Jesus that has an ability to save us. It's a Jesus who has power and authority and glory as it is given to him by God the Father, not as he has wrestled for it himself. And you, Christian, have salvation because of what he has done on your behalf. You have already failed this 
test. You've already failed it. That's your predicament. How can a failure have a saving relationship with God? By receiving the success of another, the power of another, the glory and the authority of another. God has shown himself worthy to receive all worship. How do I worship him? By setting aside your own power and receiving the power of this Savior. Let's pray together, and then we will uh, baptize Teddy. Pray with me. Our Father, thank you. Thank you that you have given to us a, a victor in Jesus Christ. He is our victor. And Lord, we are grateful that all of our failures have been responded with the perfect work of Jesus. Father, we thank you for that work. We grab hold of that work and we trust that work, even as we enter a part of the service where we baptize a little boy. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your work in Christ Jesus. In his name, amen.